Really excited to be able to uh, talk with us tonight and put a little application and practice into the talk we talked about last week on ethics. If you remember that uh, the tagline for this is not just for Sunday morning, is that God's desire is that uh, we live ethically. That is morally the way that he would desire us to live with good character and to do our business dealings and other things with his character and his standards, not just on Sunday mornings or Sunday nights, but when we leave here throughout the week, as Colossians 3 verse 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And we saw last week that the standard for our ethics is the word of God and God's unchanging character. Malachi 3 verse 6 tells us, I am the Lord, I do not change. So if God's character never changes, therefore as time goes on and different things arise, the Bible is able to answer those things because even though the times change, God's standards still say the same. And so um, I want to just give us here in this time some ethical questions, some examples of what it looks like to live out these decisions. And I wanna say to us tonight that some of the things that we say up here will be black and white. They'll be straight from the scripture, no argument necessary. Some of the questions that we have will be that way, but a lot of them won't be. And so we wanna model for you as elders here at the church what it looks like to live and make ethical decisions from a biblical framework, even if it's not specified clearly in scripture to that particular topic. And I just want you to know, there might be some things that we would disagree on. Everything that's set up here, you might not 100% agree, and there would be some room for that. But Augustine reminds us, he says, in essentials, unity. That is in all scripture, that is the doctrine is there's no argument when it comes to the essentials of the faith. We want to be unified in that. In non-essentials, liberty or freedom to interpret scripture and use your conscience that's informed by the Holy Spirit to make decisions. And in all things, charity. Everything that we do needs to be done in love. So in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So if you remember just briefly from last week, we gave you a grid to be able to put life through, and the first one was the Christ grid, and that really asked the question of what does Jesus teach? What did he do? What kind of things upset Jesus that didn't really upset anybody else? And what kind of things did Jesus get really upset about and nobody seemed to bother them? They just went on business as usual. So oftentimes, God's, Jesus' ethic, the way that he lives, is much different than the way that the culture lives. And so that we can think about that is, how can I be like Jesus? And secondly, is the kingdom grid that asks, what is this situation that I'm in? How can I better further the kingdom of God? How can I live in such a way that people will see Jesus and will put their trust in him? So really, when you put things through these two grids, we're asking ourselves what we say here all the time, how can we make more people more like Jesus, starting with ourselves and then moving out from there? So last week, we looked at the midwives in Exodus chapter one. Did anybody come to a conclusion on that? Hopefully you did, hopefully you got to think about it and maybe even talk about it a little bit this week. Well, I wanna take you there and give you, uh, just as we start out tonight uh, from Exodus chapter one, uh, what 
I believe, uh, biblically, looking at the whole of Scripture, what, uh, what was right in this situation. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. Exodus chapter 1. And we'll look at verses. Uh, I'm just going to read the two verses that I left out intentionally last week, that if you would have read your Bible, you would have seen them. But if you were only looking at the screen, you wouldn't have seen these. So the midwives, right, they're commanded to, if a child is born in Israel and it's a boy, to kill it once it gives birth. But Jesus, or God tells us through Moses what uh, God's opinion of it was when they did this. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So God, in turn, blessed these midwives for what they were doing. Now, when we look at this, right, we, Romans chapter 13 tells us that we are to submit to governing authorities, that God gives us governing authorities. But the scripture lays out for us the only time to not submit to those authorities is when they go against what God would command. Acts chapter four tells us that the apostles are told to stop speaking in the name of Christ, and they said, we would rather obey God rather than man. And so that doesn't mean that we raise up an army and revolt against the government, but it means that we peaceably live out what God has called us to do and endure the persecution that comes as a result with it. So did these women lie? The text doesn't specifically say they lied. They very well may have waited and weren't called until after the ladies gave birth. But either way, God uh, agreed that these women uh, made the ethical decision based upon what they knew of Scripture and what God had called them to do. Uh, So with that being said, we'll turn it over to these distinguished men, and I'll moderate this thing. And uh, we'll just go through some of these uh, topics together. And uh, I think we'll actually put on a screen behind us if we have time to get to some of your questions. You can text in a couple of questions as well. Uh, That'll be behind me here in just a moment, and we'll get those sent up to me. But I want to start with, uh, let's start with Jason. You were my uh, Brady just a moment ago, so we'll start with you. Uh, I want to just give you one that uh, won't be too difficult, and everybody is usually a clear consensus on, all right? And that is... uh, Halloween. (laughs) Halloween does exist. Halloween exists. It is a holiday, right? But I wondered if you could give us your take, a biblical take on, is it okay for a Christian to participate, to celebrate Halloween? And uh, if so, obviously this is a divisive holiday. How should we differ or choose to disagree and do that well as Christians? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I appreciate that softball, Brad. Um, Yeah, Halloween is divisive, which is one of those things that happens with questions of ethics, gray areas. Uh, As we heard this morning, discernment is something that's really important. We need to ask for that, and I think that's part of the heartbeat behind this series is not giving yes or no answers to all of life's questions, but teaching discernment. And really, as Christians, and uh, some of our teenagers are in here, I think that's an important thing for us to learn as well. What does the Bible say? And if the Bible doesn't give absolutes, can we look at the entirety of Scripture? And then can we start to ask some questions based off of that? And I think Halloween is one of those things, just like several of these others, that, um, that the Bible does give us some, some hints as to which direction we might go in the culture that we're in. And Uh, As I was thinking about this, Brad gave us these questions several days ago, and so we've had some time to think about some of these things. And as I was thinking specifically about this question of Halloween, 
I was just trying to, in my own mind, think about the questions that I might ask to decide whether or not something should happen in my life, whether or not I should celebrate Halloween, or whether or not we should do some of these other things that we're going to talk about here this evening. And I think you alluded to two of those questions already. The Christ grid uh, that you talked about last week, which is basically, what would Jesus do? Or how do I be more like Jesus? So does Jesus ever talk about Halloween? Well, probably not specifically Halloween, but he does speak to being involved in our culture, being salt and light in our culture. He also says, be unstained by the world. So what, what would Jesus do in our specific culture? That's a good question for us to ask as individuals or as families, and, and then especially in this Halloween discussion, what would he do if he were right here? That's not the only question, though. The kingdom question is important as well. And I take that. I'm not sure exactly how you meant that, Brad, but to me, the kingdom question is the more people part of more people more like Jesus. How do we show others the gospel? How do we usher others, as God allows us to be a part of it, into the kingdom? How do we share the gospel with other people? And then I think there's a couple other questions as well. One of them might be the culture question. So you've got the, the Christ question, the kingdom question, what I would call the culture question. How does our culture see Halloween right now? When Meredith and I moved into our neighborhood, we recognized right away that everybody in our neighborhood gets together and takes about two hours on uh, Beggar's Night, which isn't actually Halloween night here in Ankeny, where we live, but on a whole separate evening and takes a family trip around our neighborhood. Now, for us to have our lights off and to not participate would show a sign to our neighbors. Maybe we want to show them that sign. Maybe we want them to ask us, hey, how come you're not participating? And for us to be able to share, well, this is what we believe. We decided that it was better for us to actually spend those two hours with our neighbors, talking with them. Nobody's sacrificing cats or going to orgies or anything like that in our neighborhood, as far as I know. <clears throat> Maybe that is happening, we're just not aware of it, and if it, and if it is, then we're, we don't want to be a part of that. But uh, we've got kids dressed up like superheroes and princesses, and, and Meredith and I, in our immediate context and culture, decided we would rather spend those two hours walking around the neighborhood with our neighbors. Now, I grew up in a country that doesn't celebrate Halloween at all, so that'd be really weird to walk around with your neighbors for two hours on Halloween dressed up like a princess or like Gronk or anybody else. Nobody does that there. So I think you've got to ask a couple of those questions. The conscience question is a really important one. Brad yeah. alluded to that before. If you're a Christian, you've got the Holy Spirit in you, and he will tell you what to do. I believe that. If you're uncomfortable about something, it could be as a believer that God is nudging you one direction or another. And then the last one, really quickly, I would call the compassion question, which kind of relates to several of these things. How do I love my neighbor as Scripture has taught me to love my neighbor? What does love require of me? Does it require me to hold myself inside my house on Halloween, or does it require me to go and spend time with my neighbors? And that will be up to you and as your conscience leads you. That's the quick yeah, answer, I guess, some of the questions that's good, I Jay. Ask. And to disobey your conscience would be a simple thing. So if you have a conviction of, I'm not going to do this because my conscience, which should be informed by God's word, says no, then it'd be wrong to participate in it, right? So it's one of those areas that we have liberty to choose not to and choose to. First Corinthians 8 liberty kind of thing. Where yeah. the food offered to idols. Is the food bad? No, not necessarily, but you have to be careful who you eat it around, you know? Right, yep. And make sure it's individually wrapped, right? <laughs> Good, Jay. Thank you. Well, on a, on a serious note, that's hard to transition. I shouldn't have said that because I, this is a serious one. I want to turn to you, Chuck. Um, 
those who hold their Christian worldview were, were very saddened and disturbed by the ruling in the state of New York um, on the new uh, abortion law, um, giving right to late-term abortions for any reason. Uh, how would you defend or help us a little bit from Scripture to be able to talk about that intelligently? What does the Bible say about life at, at uh, conception? I think anybody that is keeping up to date, the idea in the state of New York is that abortions are allowed up to the date of birth for the mother's health. And if you wanted to listen to Al Mohler on the briefing, he covers this. It's very interesting. They don't define health. So it could be emotional health or whatever. So that's a little alarming what has taken place. And I think even, we'll get into the scriptures, but science itself seems like it keeps abortion alive just because it's so detailed now. And I don't know how they ignore that, but I mean, you have ultrasounds and 3D and such detail on a baby being formed. And for them to say, we don't know, and some would say it's a person, but I still have the right to take the life of the person. I don't know how they deny that it's a person, and I think there would be scriptures that would help support that. So science, I think, in one way is on our side to a certain degree with all that's been developed. That's why the abortion issue is not going away, even in the secular community. They understand, and nations that are, are modern nations wouldn't allow abortions like the United States is, and uh, so it is alarming to me. But in- So you're saying there, and. Jason was bringing up the cultural, also the culture you live in helps determine your ethic, and even science at times determines your ethic too as well. It does. Yeah. It does. And science is not always on our side, at least the way some people look at it. But in this case, science, I think, almost helps us to defend what the Bible itself says. Hmm. For instance, in Psalm 139, for it was you who created my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I will praise you. I mean, if you look at any of the ultrasounds or, or whatever, that is a beautiful description on God's activity within a mother's womb right there. And so science is simply following what scriptures already declared. And so I think that uh, it becomes a person at conception is right. Another argument, I think, is found in the New Testament with, with a Greek word, brephos, that is used, and it's used of a baby before the baby is born and after a baby is born. So let me just read two verses to you coming out of Luke chapter 1. It says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped inside her and it goes on to say in another one, for you see when the sound of your greetings reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy inside of me. So there's the word baby, brephos, that is used. And then later on in Luke chapter 2, the very same Greek word, it says, this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in a cloth and lying in a feeding trough, and later on it says, they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby. The exact same Greek word for a baby that was born and a baby inside the womb. That's a strong argument 
for a person before birth, and it certainly teaches that. Another reference might be in the Old Testament when something happened to a pregnant woman, the man would be held accountable if the baby was harmed. And so even in the Jewish culture, it was looked at as a person way before birth. Excellent, Chuck. Thank you. What would you say? I got a question in here. How should I approach or should I talk about abortion in the workplace and how do I do it without pushing people away? That's an interesting, you don't want to push people away, but I, I pray that you might be able to softly talk about that and uh, certainly get the truth out and maybe even ask simple questions that might probe, well, when do you think, you know, what mom would say after looking at an ultrasound and seeing the baby there, how, how old would that baby have to be for a mom to say, oh, this isn't a child? That might be a question you mm -hmm. could ask. Just reason with them a little bit because I think these people, some of them that are so against it, are so pushed, they don't even think soundly. So I think just some reasoning with them might be helpful, and then hopefully you could get to the scriptures as well. Great. Thanks, Chuck. Turn to our uh, resident counselor, Pastor Kurt, down there. Um, on the other side of that, before birth happens, uh, what, what would you take, what's your take on uh, contraceptives? Which ones would you say the Bible allows for these, and uh, how, what would be your wisdom with those? I think uh, everybody's pretty unified on that, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the realm of bioethics, ethics in the realm of life which has been divided between taking of life, making of life, and remaking of life, what's sometimes called social engineering or genetic engineering, where uh, all kinds of ethical questions come into play. Uh, this particular question really relates to the making of life. And what I wanna do is just establish what the Bible has to say about God's perspective toward children. God loves children. Hmm. Amen. We read in Psalm 127, children are an inheritance of the Lord, or a heritage from God. The fruit of the womb is his reward. They're, they're a gift from God. We, we as Christians subscribe to the scriptures and to God's perspective. So we believe that every child is a gift. And that's important for us to understand. Uh, we also understand from Genesis 1 28 that we are as God's children commanded to procreate the Bible says from God be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth um, on occasion when I'm doing premarital counseling a, a wife will say to me for example I'm a professional and I do not want to have children my work is my life and so I have to pause and explain to them the biblical perspective here that God commands us to have children. Now, it may be up for debate how many we have, but I think it would be wrong for us to not try to have children. Of course, the gift of a child comes from God, and sometimes he chooses not to give us children, and there's other ways of going, including adopting, that we can consider at a time like that, but uh, we're commanded to have children. Uh, a third thing we want to establish is that life begins at conception. Psalm 51, verse 5, David said, At the moment I was conceived, I was a sinner, implying that I was a real human being at the moment of conception between my father and my mother. Um, 
we need to understand that life begins at the moment that the sperm and the ova come together, the zametes. Sperm for the male, the female is called the ova, and when it comes together, it's called a zygote. At that moment, it is a life from God. And if it is extinguished at that moment, that is the taking of a human life. Um, a fourth thing I want to say, and I'll maybe come back to this, we are called to fulfill the Great Commission, not just by going abroad, but by having godly families, a godly heritage. It talks about that in the book of, of Malachi. So to the point you've asked me, uh, Pastor Brad, I, I think we can agree on this. Any means of uh, contraception that expels a zygote, a fertilized egg, is by definition the murder of a human being. Mm. An abortion is a murder of a human being. So we need to ask ourselves intelligent questions. How do these birth control methods work? You probably know that there are some, for example, birth control pills that are abortifacients. They expel a fertilized egg, which is the taking of a life. So I think Christians need to ask the hard question when they go to their doctor, how does this birth control method work? Because I don't want to have on my conscience, I don't want to go against the bioethics of the Bible and take a human life. We need to understand what the Bible has to say about that. Mm. Now, there's some related things in this realm of trying to have children. For example, in vitro fertilization, how does that work? When we have babies that are conceived outside the womb in a petri dish where sperm and anova are put together. You probably know this, that in many cases there are as many as maybe a dozen that are fertilized. Only one or two are placed in utero inside the mother, and the rest are what they call uh, cryopreserved or frozen for later use. I'm going to read you something here. Given that the embryo is a human person with a right to life, many Christians have repudiated the practice due to the fact that 25% of these human embryos often die in the thawing process. And many are likely to be discarded or used for research purposes if they are not placed in utero. Therefore, we need to honestly consider this little child that's been, if you will, brought about outside the human womb. What are we going to do with that? What are our bioethics relative to this? Uh, the thing I want to say again is we must be a people of conscience that apply our biblical principles, our ethics to the area of child reproduction. And children are a gift, and we ought not to abort them if we are God's people because we believe that they are life from the moment of conception. Awesome. Thank you, Kurt. Pastor Pat, okay, um, you might have some experience in this one in the, in the very far past, um, but uh, marijuana is uh, going to be... Um, is illegal? No, no. Well, he hasn't had much experience with that. Uh, I think we know where he stands on that one. Yeah. Any essentials? I, I can speak for myself. I'll go further. <laughs> so marijuana becomes uh, legal, let's say, in the state of Iowa. Um, what would you say as far as a recreational marijuana use? What, what, how would a Christian approach that? Okay. Well. And thanks for that uh, little line there. <laughs> Great answers, by the way, by all these guys, don't you think? Yeah. Uh, just thinking about the, the general aspects of, of the realms of discernment, I don't think 
Chuck's uh, question had, it was certainly an ethical question, but it was, it had a very clear biblical answer, as did Kurtz, I might add. Yeah. And um, so this sort of enters more into, into the realm of that gray stuff going on. And I, then I think some of the other scripture has to overarch all this, such as 1 Corinthians 10, uh, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And that, that's going to be one element. And then the uh, Romans 14, uh, those disputable matters where Paul says whatever is, is not of faith is, is sin. So um, I was thinking just a little bit about this and uh, uh, because I, I, I joked a little bit about it this morning because, you know, it's not. It used to be that somebody being delivered from, uh, you know, a marijuana addiction as I did, you know, was a much bigger deal than it is today because it's so acceptable. I, at at a class reunion about a year ago, uh, uh, some of the gals in my class were walking around giving out pictures, uh, and this picture was uh, was given to me. I had I had Doug uh, promise he'd throw it away as soon as he he got it. I can assure you, my eyes aren't like that because it was a bright sunny day, and uh, and really, you know, the whole business of of. Marijuana. I, I did. I smoked it for six straight years. And those were six straight really stupid years in my life. Uh, they, 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 marijuana is, uh, is uh, by nature, dumbs the individual down. It slows you down. It slows your resistance. It slows your reactions. Um, you know, so, you know, unlike alcohol, uh, the Bible does not address, it doesn't address a lot of things. It certainly doesn't address this one. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, just the same, the principles are, are the same. And, and I would just say a couple things. It's, it's against the law. It's still against the law in our state and probably will be for a t t time. And there's still debate. Even in states where it's legal, they're, they're debating it. They don't know how to legalize. They've legalized. They don't know how to legalize because they see that it has so many... Uh, mm -hmm. problems attached to it. And I would just say that, uh, uh, you know, the whole business of moderation and marijuana, because people, what, what's happening is you, the whole culture is, is comparing it to alcohol. And I would say one thing, just speaking of culture, just uh, one little thought about the culture. Uh, marijuana as a, was a symbol for a great part of the last century of rebellion. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a, and for the greater part of the last century, it was a flat-out symbol of rebellion. Now, not so much now, but still to some degree, I think it is. Uh, but those who would compare, you know, the whole alcohol, because the Bible does address alcohol, it doesn't, it doesn't say alcohol is, uh, is a sin to take alcohol or to have a social drink. It certainly addresses drunkenness very clearly with stark warnings against that. Um, but, so, but those who would... They'd make a comparison. They would say, you know, marijuana is, is uh, it's not the same. I mean, you, uh, I mean, it's the same rather as alcohol. I mean, you just, you do it in moderation, you're okay. Problem is there, the, the you know, the, the drug in the THC varies and uh, it's not the same. You can pretty much confidently say a guy could probably drink a beer and, and he, he would not be ill affected by that, the normal guy. Uh, but you couldn't say that about smoking a joint or smoking a bowl. You're pretty, you're pretty, you're, you're loaded or high or whatever for a period of time. You're not going to be a very good driver. Your reactions aren't going to be very good. And you're going to put people 
in trouble. And I just say one, one more quick thing, Brad, because one of the, I mean, somebody might be following up with a question on the medicinal. Yeah, they asked it. that. Okay, we'll address so, that. Um, and They're I, pouring I, in, yeah. So I don't one. have any problem with the medicinal uses of, of marijuana as long as it's not being used as an excuse, which I know people are doing. But the fact of the matter is, if someone, if, if science can determine uh, a legitimate uh, medicinal use for marijuana, such as and I look, pain, nausea, muscle spasm, multiple sclerosis, sleep apnea, uh, uh, autism, epilepsy. These have all been areas that they've proven that certain forms of medicinal marijuana have helped uh, in these situations. They're, you know, they're giving them out in pills and whatnot. So, uh, but just, I would just say that uh, the recreational use, however, of marijuana, back to your original question, I think it's a very, very poor choice just because of all the things, it, because of its nature to numb, to dumb, and to distort and slow everything about you, uh, your reaction, and all those kind of things. So I just think it's kind of a silly argument. Thank you. Uh, I want to get just one more question of each person, but we got 10 minutes, so I want to keep it down. Let's keep in our two-minute time frame here as quick as we can. Um, but Jason, you weren't expecting this one, but it just came in. I think it's kind of a... It, a good one, I think, to answer, because I think we are faced with questions like this. So say I see the Book of Mormon lying on a public table in a health center. Is it ours to take and throw away, or do we leave it? <laughs> yeah, take that thing and chuck it. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> 10 seconds, that was good. Are those things out for people? Uh, well, I was talking like they, if you see it at a health center. Taking? Yeah, if you see it somewhere, should you... Or if you see maybe a tract from uh, Jehovah's Witness, should you do away with it or take, take it or just leave it? What do you, what do you yeah, think? I always take those things and keep them in my office. Okay. They're, they're handed out for people to pick up, aren't they? Yeah, that's true. So I pick them up. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, there you have it. Excellent. If I see a Christian tract, I'll leave it there. <laughs> very good. All right. Uh, uh, Pastor Kurt, um, you know, John Piper has come out saying that, are you going to retire and collect seashells? Um, and uh, almost, you know, challenging us, or he is challenging us, don't waste your life and do the standard retirement. Uh, well, give us your take on, uh, some people are out here are retired or at retirement age, is coming up quickly. Uh, not to say that you are or anyone else on this panel. Um, <laughs> but uh, what's your take on uh, biblical retirement? What's that look like? The Bible really... The Bible really does not speak to retirement, right. per se. Uh, the closest you get to it is in Numbers chapter 8, where the Levites, this is verses 23 through 26, could begin serving as a Levite, a priest, at age 25 or 30, and they had to retire, if you will, of, from their heavy labor at age 50. And that's probably because of the physicality of hauling around big cattle and goats and sheep and butchering them and, and offering them as sacrifices, pretty laborious to be sure. You know, when you reach 50, you know, basketball color commentators will sometimes be asked when a guy takes a hard fall in the basketball court, do you think that's gonna affect his play right now? And the guy may say, the color commentator, I don't know, but he's gonna feel it in 30 years. And, and that's right, we, we do as we age. So I, I think these guys, however, did have the privilege these uh, older guys, it says here, of keeping guard, which tells me that even if someone 
if you will, in this context, was not actively serving, he could still contribute. And in Titus chapter 2, the older women are to teach the younger women. And I think by implication, the older men, the godly grizzlies, ought to be pouring themselves in the younger guys. Hmm. While we're obviously going to retire from some kind of occupation, we never retire from serving Jesus Christ. Yeah. We serve him to the grave. You know, uh, whether we're home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, when we're here on earth, we're away. When we're up in heaven, we're home. And that transition period is kind of retirement. And all the time, we're here on earth and on our way to heaven, we ought to be glorifying God. We ought to be pleasing God, serving God in some capacity. So I think it's fine for people to retire from a job. Physically, they may have to, but we never stop serving Jesus. Awesome. Thanks, Kurt. Uh, Chuck, uh, you've, you've served in our nation's military, correct? I have. All right. Uh, As you get closer to retirement age, you could put in for trying to help a church plant get started. That would be a good way to, there you go. to try and move in that direction. There you go. So using your resources for the kingdom of God, absolutely. Chuck, I wonder if you could just talk to us briefly. Um, so how is war different from thou shalt not kill? And how, how should a Christian think about that? Okay, I think if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, as far as murder, it says, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, Jesus said, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It almost seems like Jesus defines the wrongness of of murder is anchored to the same of anger and so that's really sobering i often teach in our evangelism if pastor pat were to stand up in front of our group here and say which of you are guilty of murder i'm hoping there wouldn't be a lot of you that would stand up that's what i'm hoping but if jesus stood up here and said, which of you are guilty of anger who would stand up? And I'm just saying that God puts together anger and murder, and we need to be cautious and understanding of that. But I think the, the idea of murder is a premeditated with the idea of revenge. That is wrong. And I think even in the play of war, war to defend, I think, can be defended. But if someone is in war seeking to revenge and premeditate, then I think it can border on being wrong, depending on the intent of the heart of the individual. So I think you have to be careful. I think certainly killing is not always wrong. God killed people. If you go through the Old Testament, if you go through Ananias and Sapphira, God can be justified in that. And I think defending something can be. Now, preemptive defense, I think that's going to be a shadow, you know, a difficult area to figure out, but I think could be presented. But I think the whole idea of anger and revenge is something that goes against God's law. Thanks, Kurt. Or Chuck, <laughs> both of you are excellent. Thank you. Uh, Pastor Pat, one of, this question has come in, and it was one that you've been asked to answer as well. Um, help us to understand divorce, remarriage, 
when is divorce allowed in scripture, and uh, who'd be qualified then to be remarried who has been divorced? Well, that's a really hard question. I'm not going to have the time to really develop this. That's I did, okay. I, I did a bullet point thing on this. I pulled it up because I knew you were going to ask the question. Uh, but I would say this at the beginning, no matter where you are in the divorce and remarriage, uh, and this is, well, there's a lot, there'd be a lot of disagreement here, I'm sure. But something hit me many years ago. Just because you're strong on a certain subject doesn't make you biblical. Hmm. It just makes you strong. Okay? I, I've heard people, I have a strong opinion. I, I don't really care about your strong opinion. What does the Bible say? That, I mean, it was a really a novel day for me to actually having taken a very strong, no, no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances for a number of years. I did something really novel. I studied the Bible on it instead of just listening to certain individuals. And just really quickly, uh, I'll, I'll list some of these things, and I won't have the time to develop them. I'll give them to you. If you're interested in the bullet point uh, paper, which I've handed out many times, I'll give it to you. So uh, the condemnation, the condemnation in Scripture is always leveled toward the instigator of divorce. That's just something to consider. The condemnation in Scripture is always leveled against the instigator of divorce. While all divorce is sin, not all divorcees have sinned. And this is really, and, and you, you can appreciate this, those of you who've been, who've been ball and chained at one time or another as a result of being divorced, you had nothing to do with that, you know, you're, you were left in the lurch. You're not the sinner in this deal, though the divorce itself is something God hates and makes clear in Malachi, where Kurt referred to earlier. Mm. Um, four, the sinner, that, the sinner, that is, staying with that idea, and that, according to Matthew chapter uh, 19, verse 8, is the hard-hearted. That's the one who's instigating the divorce. That's the hard-hearted one, okay? Uh, fifthly, God does not lump, this would be an encouragement to you, it, he does not lump all divorced persons into the same category. So why should we? He doesn't, okay? I mean, you've, he's, this is why you have 1 Corinthians 7. You should study 1 Corinthians 7 for yourself. Uh, uh, in divorce... The person who leaves or instigates the breakup has only two options, to remain unmarried or to be reconciled to their spouse. That's 1 Corinthians 7, verse 11. That's very clear in the passage. And so we always ask questions when people come to us wanting to be remarried. We ask those hard questions. Did you instigate? Have you gone back? Would you re reconcile? Have you tried to reconcile? Uh, seventhly, in divorce, the person left, left in the lurch, that is, is innocent from the standpoint of any desire to break the covenant vows. Nobody's innocent. We all get that. There, everybody's guilty. Even if you're not guilty of infidelity or whatever, you know, we're all sinners here, right? But you're innocent from the standpoint of, break, of uh, trying to break those covenant vows. Uh, eighthly, in, church, or in, in divorce, the person left is not bound, according to 1 Corinthians 7.15, is not bound... Uh, and that's an important thing to, to think about. Not, that is not obligated to uh, their spouse if they've been left. Ninth, in divorce, the this is a very important distinction. The, in divorce, the prohibition to remarry. In divorce, the prohibition to remarry, 1 Corinthians 7, 11, uh, let her remain unmarried, is not given in 1 Corinthians 7, 15. That's the one who's been left in the lurch. They are not given that same prohibition. That's very interesting to me. And 10th, in divorce, if the person left chooses to remarry, assuming they've exhausted all avenues to salvage their former marriage, 
They, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 27 and 28, they, quote, have not sinned, unquote. Have you ever read that? Hmm. And then 11, just two more, 11, only, a this, is, this is just to give you some guidance because we're talking about ethics here. Mm -hmm. Only a dedicated follower of Christ is capable of making the right decision in this area. So you've been divorced, you've been left in the lurch, whatever. Only the dedicated follower of Christ is able to make a right decision this area. And that's after seeking godly counsel. Don't knee jerk. I see this. We see this, the rebound thing. Don't do it. It's really, really unwise. And finally, the controversy surrounding this area, the area of divorce and remarriage and the ensuing differences that Christ loving uh, followers have and demand that we all respect one another. This is so they don't get stoned afterwards. And allow for each, you know, uh, you know, those under such circumstances to make decisions before God, realizing that in the end, that's who they're going to stand before, right? Mm. We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Amen. Yeah. Amen. So there. Thanks, Pastor. And he does have a bullet-pointed sheet. It's just a page, uh, front and back, outlining those things that he just talked about. So if you'd like that, uh, we'd love to give that to you. A really helpful document he's put together on that. A very sensitive and uh, subject that many of us are trying to navigate and work through. So uh, there are a lot of questions that have come in on here tonight, and we're not going to be able to, to get to them, but uh, we will take them and uh, hopefully be able to address a lot of those at a different time and maybe uh, put some videos together as well from the staff addressing some of those questions. But I just want to leave us with this thought tonight. A lot of the things that were mentioned tonight are things that are clearly specified in Scripture, and those are the things that we hold to. And those are the things that we say, yeah, this is what God has clearly laid out for us. Another thing that we, other things we mentioned tonight are, are minor things or what would be under the, the liberties category. I just want to put this out there to us to let's not get hung up on the minor things, whether it's liberties that we say we have or restrictions in the sense of I believe that it's I have this liberty and someone else say, no, I have this restriction on me. Let's not focus in on the things that God has not clearly specified in Scripture. But instead, let's focus on together of the absolutes. Let's leave the secret things up to God and focus on what God has made clear to us. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of his law. So let's come together as a church and say, on the essentials, we're gonna be unified. On the uh, non-essentials, we're gonna have liberty and freedom. And we're going to love each other in that. We're gonna care for one another on areas we disagree. And in all those things, we're gonna have, we're gonna have uh, charity. We're going to love each other well. Now let's pray together. God, I thank you for these men, these men who are my friends that sit next to me, that um, are, are striving to live out a, a godly ethic, not just seeing it on Sunday mornings, and for the many that are out here tonight that desire to live and honor you. God, I pray we would be unified in the things that are clearly given to us in Scripture. Thank you that you don't leave it up to question of how we can be made right with you, God. That is so clear. You make the gospel so clear to us. You tell us the things that we absolutely need to know for life and for godliness and the other things you leave up to us to be guided by the Holy Spirit. 
to trust you, to say I'm not gonna make it black and white because I want you to follow me and be led by me. And I want you to seek counsel. And so God, I pray for the one that's out there that is facing some ethical dilemmas. May they seek counsel, seek your word, and would look at the uh, changing times through the lens of your word and your unchanging standards. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, so we give these guys a hand up here, huh? That's great.